is time to put away the bias, the lies, and deceit and bring forth real talk from real people about real news. Providing the out loud truth and capturing the essence of a new generation all in a fast-paced hour. This is Viewpoint, the Midweek Report. Life is a series of never-ending stories. As I see it, my job is to tell those stories in a way that will give some clarity to this complicated and perplexing world. Welcome to Viewpoint, the Midweek Report. I'm Alana Friedman, and over the next hour, I'll try to give you an in-depth look into some of the most important stories this week. The news this week is a little strange, actually, because uh, most of the top stories were linked to the fallout from earlier stories, stories from last week, like the Mueller report and uh, the Democrats' presidential campaigns. And uh, oh, here, but here's here's one that uh, goes back a year, more than a year. The Parkland school shooting report was released this week, and that was news because we were interested in finding out what the commission actually discovered. They spent a year looking into what actually happened at the Marjorie Stone and Parkland School when um, a shooter, a former student, went into the school and killed 17 students and was not stopped. In fact, when he was finished shooting, he left the school. Uh, he merged with uh, escaping students and left and went to Walmart where he got a, a drink, and then he went to McDonald's. Altogether, this was a screw-up of major proportions. And a lot of people died as a result of the incompetence of people who should have been there to protect them. So I want to talk to you about the, the commission report, what they found, and uh, what it means for the rest of us. When we talk about school security, what are we talking about? What does it mean? And how will it help? How will the, the, the remediations that we put in place, how will that help keep our kids safe? So that's what I want to talk about. First of all, I want to talk about the, the report itself because this commission has been working on this for nearly a year. And um, the report, as it was finally presented, 400 pages worth, uh, was approved unanimously by the Commission. So let's take a look at some of their key findings. Uh, one of the things that surprised and disturbed me a lot was that key people involved in the incident, uh, like the sheriff's deputies and the high school officials, they gave accounts to the Commission that contradicted each other and contradicted the surveillance video, for example, and other evidence that um, the commission decided was that these people who were there to hopefully protect our kids were either incompetent or they lied. Neither one of those is good. Of course, if they were incompetent, they shouldn't have been in those positions. And if they lied, though they probably should be in jail because uh, they were responsible in one way or another for the death of 17 kids. Anyway, uh, one, of the, one of the things that this report said, and I quote, 
Accountability starts at the top of every organization, and all leaders have an obligation to ensure not only that the law is followed, but that effective policies and best practices are implemented, unquote. Now, one of the things that I found most ominous was that after all the hue and cry that followed the Parkland shooting, and remember all of the publicity and the, the uh, speeches and the media frenzy around this, this event, there was a reaction to take away guns saying maybe we should arm teachers. One of the things that the commission found was that there remains noncompliance and a lack of urgency to enact basic safety principles, unquote. That is shocking, absolutely shocking. And it was this sense of it isn't urgent, is disappointing, and, and it's ominous because it means it could happen again. The, the commission said, quote, there is an expectation and a rightful expectation on the part of parents when you send your kids to school in the morning, there's an expectation they're going to come home alive in the afternoon, unquote. Well, yeah, absolutely. And that is something that I believe needs to be taken very, very seriously. Because in Florida, there seems to be a kind of aversion to guns that is almost hysterical, that comes from official organizations such as the Florida Education Association, which represents the teachers, and the Florida PTA, which uh, somehow thinks that more guns on campus will make the schools less safe. All evidence to the contrary. History has shown us that when communities are armed, crime goes down. So we have a situation in Parkland that was not unlike a situation that occurred in Columbine a number of years ago that was really the first major school shooting in recent memory. This is what happened in Columbine, where two young men, two students, went in, loaded for bear, and killed 13 people, including a teacher, and wounded more than 20 others before they turned their guns on themselves and committed suicide. It took the SWAT team nearly two hours before they entered the school. There were a lot of lessons learned from Columbine. Among them were that when you have an active shooting situation, you need to take immediate action to intercede, not wait till the shooting's over. And so they introduced something called the immediate action rep rapid deployment tactic, which is used in situations where an active shooter is trying to kill people rather than take hostages. What we also learned from Columbine was increased emphasis on school security with zero tolerance policies. None of that was in effect in Parkland. It was shocking. One of the things that was shocking was that the police took so long to go into the school. In the case of Parkland, they didn't go in at all until the shooting was over. And one of the things that, so that one of the major lessons from Columbine was that you don't wait. And in Parkland, they waited till the shooting stopped 
before they went in. They were hiding behind cars and, and, and driving around. If you look at the, I looked at the reenactment video that used uh, a combination of graphics, uh, animation, and uh, video to show that the the cops and the security people were were going back and forth around all the buildings of this uh, school complex. Uh, the shooter was in building 12, but they were all over the place, and nobody went into building 12 until they actually until the shooter had actually left the building. So we're talking about tremendous mismanagement of a situation where it honestly, as I looked at the video, it wasn't totally clear that had they gone in immediately, they could have stopped it, but they should have tried because it was all over in a matter of minutes, I think about six minutes. If they had gone in armed and had they gone in ready, they could have engaged the shooter instead of having him engaged helpless students and killing them. So I want to talk to you about what the possible remediation is for school security to keep our schools safer. The commission's report said that they that one possible remediation was to arm specially trained teachers and have them be a deterrent because what we do know is that uh, from long experience that gun-free zones are the most dangerous places because that's where people with guns are most likely to go in order to meet the least resistance. Schools are all gun-free zones right now. But it is a, I believe, uh, a should be a serious consideration that well-trained staff, not just teachers, but maybe uh, people in the, the, the school office who are properly trained should be able to take responsibility for keeping the school safe. And that's so that's yeah, that's one thing, but there's a lot more. Uh, one of the things that I, I believe very, very strongly, and this comes from my background, I was trained in Israel and uh, I have been a, uh, an analyst of uh, counterterrorism intelligence for a very long time. And so when I look at a school shooter, this is somebody who is behaving like a terrorist. And the response to this shooting has to be, in order to be completely effective, to have the best chance of being effective, it has to be treating the shooter as though he is a terrorist. One has to assume that he does not have expectations of coming out of this encounter alive. Uh, in this case, the shooter did go out alive and as I said, he went to Walmart's and got himself a, a drink and then he went to McDonald's and then they caught him and they arrested him. So what we're talking about is, first of all, as we've said, immediate response. In the case of Parkland, the, the deputies did not have immediate access to their vests, their bulletproof vests. Uh, and maybe that's why they didn't go in, but in any case, doesn't matter. They should have had them immediately. They should be carrying some kind of backpack with them all the time or have it with them in their carts. So that should something like this happen, they are immediately prepared to go in. There's an argument that says police officers are not responsible for protecting individual lives. 
uh, that's not their job. I honestly have no idea what their job should be if that is not what they are prepared to do. In a situation like this, the response has to be immediate. SWAT can't get there within a matter of minutes in most cases. And so it's the officers, it's the security personnel on hand, if there are any. It's the police who get there as quickly as possible, within minutes, hopefully. And uh, it is eventually going to be a SWAT team if they get there. But in this case, by the time a SWAT team could have gotten there, it was all over. So it's the officers who are sworn to protect the community. And they are, they weren't there. They were there, but they weren't there because they did nothing. So except run around in circles and talk to each other on the, on the, um, their comms. So we are talking now about treating this situation as though it were a terrorist event. And our police officers need to be trained for that. That's not a simple matter. There is special training that goes with that. It's not just going in on time, but it's also understanding what the um, mental reactions of a terrorist are going to be. This is something you can learn. This, it's, of course, every situation is different. Every school is different. Every uh, security plan has to be somewhat different. Uh, unfortunately, I believe, the federal government has come out with some one-size-fits-all solutions to school shooting and uh, school security. Um, I don't believe these work. I think school shootings uh, are different. Every situation is different. In this case, you had a school with, uh, I believe, 13 units, uh, building units, and uh, all the shooting took place in one of those. Uh, when you had the um, Virginia Tech shooting a number of years ago, you had the shooter going from place to place. It, each one is different. And, and so you need to not only have a general plan, which is what the, the um, federal government has put together, which is essentially they tell you run, hide, fight uh, in that order. But sometimes that doesn't work. One size does not fit all. Because there are some situations where um, you can't run. There are some situations where you can't hide, where running is the best option. But in other situations, hiding may be the best option or fighting may be the best option. And you just don't know which one it's going to be because every situation is different. I uh, believe that every school should have its own unique plan which is based perhaps on a template, which I think is a good idea, but that it calls for remediation and security procedures and protocols that are specific to that school, specific to the issues of, for example, how many exits and entrances are there? Is it possible to open the and a side entrance from the inside and then prop it open because there's no alarm on the door, let's say? Or is it possible that uh, uh, somebody could piggyback entrance into the school with other students, somebody who's not a student? Uh, there are all kinds of possibilities of how a shooter could get into the school, how he could bring a, a, a lethal weapon into the school. This guy came in with a, with a range bag full of, not just with his gun, but with uh, hundreds of rounds of ammunition. 
And, and so this is a, a situation where you need to, first of all, have a general understanding of what it means to counteract a terrorist attack. And then what are the specific issues at, at that school? What is the culture like? What is the age group like? Every school is different on the basis of age. And one thing I just want to emphasize here, we do not want to train our children to be victims. We want them to feel empowered in the face of this insofar as it's possible, because that is what's going to save their lives more than anything. The solutions are going to vary from school to school, as they should. The Parkman Shooting Commission report is going to be very useful in showing not just what is possible to employ to remediate school insecurity, but also what it is possible to do to avoid the mistakes, and there were many of them, that took place at Parkland on February 14th, 2018. Okay, I'm going to take a short break, and then we will come back and talk about the mother of all caravans pointing in our direction from south of the border. Don't go away. I'll be right back. We are the vision of the voices. You can email us at talk at americaoutloud.com. Well, the Out Loud perspective awaits you in life, love, politics, a healthy lifestyle, your faith, personal development, and living an out loud life on americaoutloud.com. Glitcher News and Entertainment Network, where you can listen 24-7 on our free apps on both Android and Apple. Welcome to the new era in communications, America Out Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Viewpoint, the midweek report. I'm Alana Friedman, and I'd like to talk to you a little bit about what's happening on our southern border. I want to focus on what the president calls a crisis and what the Democrats say is no crisis. How can that be? The interesting thing is that the Democrats say that there is no crisis when immigrants are pouring over the southern border in huge numbers, but when would-be illegal immigrants are jammed into facilities that no longer have the capacity to hold them, suddenly that is a huge humanitarian crisis for the Democrats. And yet, when the president says he wants the wall, they say there's no need for it, and they believe we should let all these would-be immigrants in. Now, think about the numbers for a minute. In uh, February, 75,000 would-be immigrants, illegal immigrants, were caught by the uh, immigration authorities and returned to Mexico. In March, 100,000 were caught and sent back. Now, that's interesting because these are only the ones who were caught. We don't know how many came over and were not caught. So we're dealing with a huge number. Now, in addition to that, the latest news is that a new caravan is forming and that this caravan may well contain more than 20,000 people, all of whom want to come to America. Now, I'm not against immigrants. And I'm not against immigration. This country was created by immigrants. 
This country was built by immigrants. It was developed by immigrants. And it became a light to the rest of the world by immigrants, all of us. Either we came ourselves from other places, or our parents did, or our grandparents, and we became Americans. And that is what made this country great. Is it, it was, we called it the melting pot. People came from all over the world and they came here and they became Americans. But that's not what's happening now. We are now living in a uh, culture that demands multiculturalism. That's something else. That's not the melting pot. That's where everybody keeps his or her own ethnic and cultural identities to the extent that many don't even learn to speak English because they don't feel the need to, that they don't learn to uh, become Americans. They remain national from wherever country, and that's supposed to make us better. I don't believe it does. I think multiculturalism is a, a, a path to the disintegration of what America is all about. And so when we're talking about a crisis on the border, we're talking about a situation which is going to multiply exponentially the number of very serious issues that ultimately will destroy America. Unless, unless we take the threat seriously and make sure that the great catastrophe that we see as a possibility never happens. America today is deeply divided. It doesn't really matter what the divisions are. They are all deeply destructive and they are taking us to a place that is very, very dangerous for this country. Add to that the huge flow of illegal immigrants and you have yourself a recipe for catastrophe. I'd like to share with you an experience I had when I was working in a relatively small metropolitan area uh, and I was invited to participate in a study of the immigrant population which was fairly large for that size city. The purpose of the study was to see how these new immigrants were adjusting to life in America. And one of the things that we did was to have a focus group and we had women mostly who were sitting around the table and uh, we were discussing what their major issues were. Now we were not allowed to ask them whether or not they were documented. But when we came around to asking a question that was something like, what do you consider your biggest problem living here in America? And one woman answered and everybody around the table agreed with her. You know, they were all shaking their, uh, nodding their heads. And she said, the biggest problem that I have is that I lost my job to an illegal immigrant because the employer who used to pay us a fair wage and pay us benefits and transport us to work every day and so forth, now he pays them a lot less than he paid us and he doesn't have to pay them benefits and he doesn't have to do very much for them aside from get them, getting them to work and back. And I've lost my job, she said. I, I don't know what to do because I can't compete. We don't talk about that very much, that the people who came here legally, they 
they did what they were supposed to do to get here are being hurt by these illegal immigrants. And that's a very serious problem. Now, one of the things that really bugs me is when Democrats talk about immigrants, they don't distinguish between legal immigrants and illegal immigrants. Our legal immigrants distinguish very clearly and they don't like the way the Democrats do not distinguish. I believe this is a demographic that uh, Democrats are overlooking in their quest to regain power in Washington and in the individual state houses. But it is a demographic that is serious. People who want to become Americans, who want to be Americans, and they went through a lot to get here. They are very proud to be Americans and they take their responsibility as Americans very seriously. And that means that when election time comes around, they vote. So Democrats should really take that into account when they are considering where their true base really lies. Now here's another issue that's closely associated with illegal immigration, and I've mentioned it before. When people go through the legal process, they are screened for medical issues. And if they have communicable diseases, they're either quarantined until they are cured or they uh, are sent back. This is pretty standard, probably in most countries that have immigration processes that they adhere to. But when a person comes across the border and does not go through this medical screening, we don't know what diseases he may be carrying. I had a friend once who ate in a local restaurant, one of the big chains that you probably have all heard of, and uh, got very, very sick and didn't know what it was from, but they did some lab tests and identified a uh, foodborne bacteria that was only found in El Salvador. And it turned out that there was an El Salvadoran a uh, woman in the kitchen who in some way infected the food with what she was carrying. That's only one thing. But we have diseases now that we haven't had for years, like whooping cough and, and uh, tuberculosis and typhus and even leprosy. I mean, who ever heard of those diseases existing in our country anymore? But they're coming. Uh, they're being brought by people who don't have the medical protections that we have in this country, the vaccinations that are required and so forth. And because they haven't gone through the medical screening at the border, they bring these diseases in with them and put us all at risk. We have to think about what some of the ramifications are of this surge of illegal immigration into this country. Now, the president is building his wall, and I think it's a good idea. Any sovereign nation needs to be able to define its borders and limit passage across its borders. That's just standard all around the world. In fact, when there was this great immigration flow into Europe last year, or I guess last year, the year before, some countries like Hungary built fences around their countries because they didn't want any more of this these illegal immigrants to come into their country 
They were overwhelming their systems. And that's what is happening here as well. If you go to San Francisco, for example, or Los Angeles, and you see the places where the homeless are living in the streets, they're living in tents or they're living in little tent cities uh, on the sidewalks of the city. And you walk downtown certain areas of San Francisco where people are living and you, you see human waste and you see hypodermic needles just lying on the street. Are all these people illegal immigrants? I don't know. But what's happening is that the huge number of illegal immigrants that is descending upon our cities is causing a collapse of the infrastructure that is in the past has been able to support the homeless. They no longer can. There's, and there's another issue. We have issues now where cities and, and even states are declaring themselves to be sanctuary areas where illegal immigrants can come and be safe from prosecution. This is a situation that is untenable in a society that considers itself to be a sovereign state because it means that we are considering the welfare of illegal immigrants as being more important than the welfare of our own citizens. So when we look at a mega caravan of 20,000 people, or we look at the trains where people climb on top, they call them the death trains or the beast trains, they're boxcars and, uh, you know, freight cars where people climb on top and ride on top of the trains in order to come north to the American border. Now, the president is trying to do something about that. And I think what he's doing makes a lot of sense. The first thing he has done has been to say, if you are El Salvador or Guatemala or Honduras and you are not doing anything to stop this flow of humanity northward, we are no longer going to support you. And he has, and he has essentially pulled back on aid to these countries. He's also told Mexico, if you cannot stop these caravans for, that are coming through your country, if you cannot stop them and they end up at our border, we will seal the border. And he's threatened to do that next week. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what kind of response we get from these countries. But it will be, I think, to our great advantage that until we can build the wall, we must control the borders. Now, the president is sending down several hundred more troops to support the 2,500 active duty troops and the 2,200 National Guard who are on the border now. The soldiers who are already there are overwhelmed by what's going on. And so I think what the president is doing is the right thing to do. I want to see him build that wall as fast as he possibly can. I think we will see a very good outcome from that in terms of stopping the flow of illegal immigrants. Now, there are a number of things that we haven't yet spoken about regarding the crisis on the border. Who are the people who are coming over? We know some of them are families. We know some of them are partial families. We see the mothers and the fathers and the little children and sometimes uh, a grandma. But there are others. There are a whole lot of single males. Where are they from? Well, many of them are from Honduras and Guatemala and El Salvador. 
But I uh, heard an interview with a an ICE agent who said that 96% of the males that he sees are people they call OTMs, other than Mexican. And what he means is that they're not only from the three Central American countries, but they're also from the Middle East, they're from Eastern Europe, and they're from uh, the tri-border area in South America, where which is home to Hezbollah and the drug cartels and gangs. And uh, we have a, a mix of very unsavory people coming into this country, trying to blend in with the families. Sometimes you'll see a single man with a child. Now that child may not be his, his child. He may have been paid to take that child across, or he may have kidnapped the child. There's a great deal of human trafficking going on. In spite of what the Democrats would like you to believe, many of the people in these caravans are not people you would want for your neighbors. And in fact, you really wouldn't want them in our country. So we have a uh, puzzle on our hands. Who's organizing these caravans? People don't spontaneously come together like that and travel thousands and thousands of miles and pay thousands and thousands of dollars to get over the mountains, over this rugged terrain, under the worst possible conditions, traveling for months in order to get to and possibly get into the United States. Sometimes uh, there is an adult and a child. We don't really know if the child and the adult are related. Parents have been sending their children across the border with coyotes. Uh, they pay them to take them over and then hope that they will be reunited with families already in the United States. Somebody is organizing them. According to rumors, someone is paying them to do this. These are not spontaneous caravans. These are organized efforts to break through our borders and essentially invade our country. Now, there's one more thing. The Democrats are very eager to have as many of these people come into the country as possible. It's like a puzzle. If you put that piece together with the other pieces, the sanctuary cities, the sanctuary states, the hysterical concern over the human crisis on the border when they don't care if the border is open, how do all these pieces fit together? Well, it seems as though the Democrats are looking for votes, lots of votes. In some cities, they've passed laws that allow non-citizens to vote in local elections. This is one step towards having non-citizens vote in national elections. And the Democrats are looking to maintain their power in the House in Congress, and to retake their power in the Senate and in other offices of government. So the Democrats think, and maybe they're right, that if they get all of these undocumented immigrants into the country and allow them to vote, they will vote for the Democrats. There is an underlying method to the madness of the Democrats, and this is surely madness because as much as they believe that, that the influx of millions of illegal immigrants into the country who are then allowed to vote will create an America that is led and governed and managed by the Democrats, I rather suspect that they're going to be disappointed. The wall will be built. The border will be secured. 
And America will stand as a sovereign nation with borders that they protect and secure. I think the president is right. I want him to be successful in his endeavor to build the wall and secure the border. Our lives depend on it. Our country depends on it. Okay, we're going to take another hard break. Then I'll be back and we'll talk about a few of the other stories that have made the news this week. I'm Alana Friedman, and you're listening to Viewpoint, the Midweek Report. The America Out Loud talk radio app is on Android or Apple. It's the perfect way to listen in to the new generation of talk shows and hosts who are ready to inform and inspire. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa. Award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to Viewpoint, the midweek report. I'm Alana Friedman, and over the next 18 minutes or so, I'll be sharing with you some shorter stories from the news and elsewhere. Here we go. The first story came to me in the mail from a friend in Iowa. It was a local hometown shopper newspaper. And on the cover were, in fact, there were two newspapers, so there were two covers. And on the covers were photographs of one was of a bald eagle and the other was of a a map of some kind and it was all about turbine windmills now turbine windmills have always been about saving the earth from the pollution caused by fossil fuels but this these two ads were a little different and the reason i'm referring to them is because Iowa is a place, if you, if you remember the show Oklahoma, and there's a song, the title song, uh, which talks about Oklahoma, where the wind comes sweeping down the plains. Well, Iowa's like that. The winds are amazing in Iowa, and Iowa is a perfect site for windmills. In fact, there are a growing number of wind farms throughout Iowa because it's such an ideal place to capture the wind. Today, There are more than 4,000 windmills throughout Iowa and some very large wind farms. That should be a big plus for a state like Iowa because after all, they're conserving energy. Iowa is also one of the primary sources in the country for ethanol. One of their two major crops is corn from which ethanol is made. Iowa is very big on the clean energy map. But so what's the problem with 
windmills because this is something, uh, these two advertisements, they were half-page ads in uh, this local paper, and uh, they were clearly partisan against windmills. So what is the problem? Well, it seems that windmills are a danger to migratory birds. And migratory birds are an essential part of the world's environmental balance. Because when birds fly from one part of the hemisphere to another, they are creating an environmental balance by being part of the ecological cycle. Now, if enough birds hit these windmills, and some say they're killed by the millions, and they do not reach their destination, then the ecological balance in the place where they are intended to go changes. And that can be a very big issue. Now, some of you know that I used to live in Israel. And in Israel, this was a big issue because Israel is a flyway for migratory birds from Asia, from Europe, and from Africa. And they all converge over the part of the Middle East where Israel is located. So at any time during the winter, you can see flocks of storks from Europe or other birds from, from Russia. Or in the summertime, you can see birds from Africa flying north to Europe and Asia. Now, when you start thinking in terms of putting up large wind farms, even small wind farms, as Israel was during the time I was there, you run the risk of interrupting these migratory flights. And that can change the ecology and the ecological balance for half the globe. And the same thing is true for the Western Hemisphere, where we live. Because if the migratory patterns are challenged or disrupted, or a large number of migratory birds are killed in the course of their flight, the entire hemisphere is affected. So you see how, how consequential this can be. Now, the uh, thing that was shocking to me in this ad was that there is one company in Iowa that's basically got a monopoly on the wind farms, as far as I can tell, and they have applied for a permit which is uh, available under the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Incidental Take Permit. In other words, you have the right to take, which means to kill, so many animals, or in this case, so many birds, as incidental to your business. So they're talking about killing native bat populations as a consequence of the windmill operations. And I, I don't know if you know this, but bats are very, very important in mosquito control. The bats are being killed in the thousands by these wind turbines. In addition to the bats, the company has also applied for a permit to incidentally kill up to and beyond 3,000 federally protected bald eagles in the state of Iowa. 3,000. That's, I assume, in a year, although it doesn't say. So when I got this, I did some research, and I found out that Iowa has over a thousand species of birds that are protected under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. And these birds are being um, threatened in a significant way. 
the wind farms are creating a hazard for them as they as they migrate from north to south and back again. At the last survey of migratory birds in Iowa, which was this last year, the count of bald eagles in Iowa was 2,924 mature and young. Now they are not, strictly speaking, migratory birds. But this company has applied for permits to kill 3,000. In other words, in one year, they could wipe out the entire population of bald eagles in the state of Iowa. Not only does that sound unreasonable, it sounds positively obscene. This is uh, greed at its very, very worst. There are solutions that are under development now that will help cut the casualties of migratory birds by the wind turbines. So I just thought this was an interesting story to bring to you and share with you uh, because it's different from what we usually do and it's a problem in search of a solution. There are scientists working on various ways of solving this problem because as we go forward, wind energy is going to be a more and more attractive option in certain parts of the country. And so the solution to this problem needs to be found. And I have no doubt that it will be found, but in the meantime, I think there has to be a balance between corporate greed and the search for clean energy on the one hand, and on the other hand, maintaining the environmental balance that is essential to the future of our planet. This next section is going to be pretty short. It's about Jesse Smollett, as he likes to say with his pinky sticking out. I will keep this short because I really don't think he deserves the airtime. I don't have anything good to say about him. But there is one thing that I haven't heard anybody else say, and so I'm going to say it. What he did was so reprehensible because he designed and carried out a hate crime that was all staged and paid for with a check with his signature on it. And he used a vehicle that was wrapped around white, black, left, right hate. He had his buddies dress up with MAGA hats. And that had to do with President Trump and white power and all this other stuff. And I don't think there is anything redeemable about what he did. It started off as mail fraud and then it went into this uh, phony attack. And then when he was found out, he appeared before a grand jury who recommended that he be tried on, I think it was 16 counts of various things. And then he used his black privilege to extricate himself from most of it. He compromised an already corrupt district attorney who dismissed all the charges. And uh, he lost a $10,000 bail, but he's a millionaire. So why, you know, it's hard for me to cry over that. It's the idea of black privilege that I really just wanted to say a few words about because he's wealthy, he's famous, He's an actor, he's a star, and he's rich. 
And he, as a black man, he has very light skin, which gives him status in the black community, supposedly. He did all this for money. He thought he was worthy of a higher salary. He gets a million dollars. I'd do a great deal for that. Not what he did, but either the first part where he committed crimes or the second part where he got himself out of trouble because he's wealthy and he's famous and he knows rich, famous people like the former president and his wife. And they were able to help him get out of trouble. I'm frankly tired of hearing people cry about people with white privilege. It's rubbish. This country was founded by mostly white people, white men in particular, and it was developed by immigrants of all colors, but in the lead were white men. And yes, many of them did have privilege, but in the end, they created a country where all of us have opportunity and all of us have privilege if we choose to do the hard work and put in the sweat equity that makes it happen. So I have no sympathy for Jesse Smollett and that's really all I have to say about that. His black privilege may end him up in jail and after pulling a stunt like this, that's probably where he belongs. So as far as Jesse Smollett is concerned, I have two words for him. Get lost. Now this is the last segment of this show. And I want to take the opportunity to tell you a little bit about me. Maybe you were wondering who is this lady who talks about terrorism and politics and birds and just about everything, I guess. Let me introduce myself to you. My name is Alana, Alana Friedman. I'm an intelligence analyst and I'm a farmer. Yes, you heard that right. I actually have a farm. I actually raise sheep and goats and chickens. So if in the course of my show, you actually hear a rooster crowing, yeah, that's okay. That's, that's real. It's authentic. So every once in a while, he has to add his two cents to the conversation. So in addition to all this, now I get to spend some of my time with you. And I love that part of my life because it means connecting with you, sharing my thoughts with you, sharing my stories with you. I also spend an awful lot of time on the computer, on the telephone, connecting with people who share my enthusiasm and passion for the world and the news and the things that are going on that affect our lives sometimes very deeply, sometimes superficially, but always interesting. I guess I was born a Democrat. Is that even a thing? I grew up in a house full of Democrats. I've written about that before. You can read some of my articles or all of the most recent ones on America Out Loud. Where else? So growing up, my father was dyed in the wool, Democrat. His father was a Republican. So we also heard a lot of derogatory remarks about Republicans uh, because they disagreed vehemently on politics. I was brought up to believe that the Democrats were the good guys. I didn't know about poll tax and segregation, and, and I didn't know that Martin Luther King Jr. was a Republican. 
I learned those things later. When I was growing up, I thought the Democrats were the party for the little guy. I didn't know enough about economics or politics to understand the differences and the distinctions that finally led me to the Republican point of view, or more, more correctly, to the conservative point of view. I spent 16 years in Israel where I was trained and where I worked. I brought up my kids there and I learned a lot there. I, I think that was my second college education. Living there, being a single mom, bringing up my boys in a foreign country and learning to live and work in the intense, exciting and wonderful environment that Israel is all about. Not long after I came back to the United States from Israel, 9-11 happened and it changed all of us. In my case, it made me realize that I had experience and skills that were fairly uncommon in the United States. And so I began concentrating my activities on counterterrorism. One of the first things I did after 9-11 was I began to make the rounds of chambers of commerce and rotary clubs, speaking to them about what they were feeling. At the time, I lived in the Boston area. And what I found was that many of them knew people who were on the planes that flew into the Twin Towers. Their loss was something that was very difficult for them to A, accept and B, understand. So, I went to these groups to speak to them and I spoke to many, telling them what they were feeling, the feelings of confusion, the feelings of loss, the feelings of wanting to cry all the time, not being able to make decisions, not being able to remember things that should come easily to them. All these things are normal after this kind of trauma, but because Americans had never experienced it before, they didn't know that. So that was my first task, was to try to make people understand that what they were feeling was okay. Then I worked as a consultant and an advisor to industry, to large corporations and young startups, to schools and to government and law enforcement to help them come to terms with what they had to do to protect their people, their facilities, their operations, and to keep everyone safe and secure. Now we're in a time where we have evolved from a society which is afraid to a society that is more complacent than is comfortable. In an era of political correctness, we don't look at the potential threats. We excuse the threats and we shade our eyes from reality. There are no easy answers, but it is time for us to wake up and understand that the future is in our hands. And if we accept the responsibility for our future, America has the great possibility to be strong again and vibrant again and whole again. Well, our hour is just about up and I want to thank you for spending it with me. I hope this has been interesting and I look forward to spending time with you again. Wishing you all a good week. This is Alana Friedman, and you've been listening to Viewpoint, the Midweek Report.